everybody. This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law, and we have a big legal roundup for you today. I'm Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host Joe Armstrong, and we're going to hit the big legal topics of the week, and it has been a big week for legal topics. Joe, do you want to tell everybody what we're going to be unpacking for them today? Yeah, let's get rolling here. Hello, Jessica. There was indeed a flurry of activity in law, politics, and things in between this week. We're going to discuss developments in the Texas abortion law, some movement on the District of Columbia Circuit Court in regards to the January 6th insurrection from last year, almost a year ago. We'll also provide some analysis of President Biden's Supreme Court Reform Commission. We're going to touch on actor Jussie Smollett. He was convicted on a number of counts of fabricating a fake hate crime against himself, so we'll delve into that a bit. And also, former Republican presidential nominee and Senator Bob Dole died this week at 98, and I'll talk a bit about his long career in politics. So first up, Jessica, is breaking news about SB8. We've talked about this a lot on our podcast. That's Texas's new highly restrictive abortion bill that went into effect on September 1st of this year. We know that this is a clever law in that it essentially deputizes anyone to sue abortion providers or anyone suspected of assisting a woman obtaining abortion in Texas after approximately six weeks of pregnancy, which, as we've talked about before, is before most women are aware that they are pregnant. We also know that SB8 is a direct challenge to the abortion standard guaranteed by the Roe versus Wade decision that has stood for nearly half a century. As of this morning, the Supreme Court has allowed a challenge to SB8, so let's unpack that, Jessica. What does this mean? It means a lot and a little. Um, A friend of the show said on Twitter, basically, this is like one of those meals that you bite into and at first you think, it's okay, it's okay. And then the more you chew, the more bitter it is. And that's exactly how this decision is. So Joe, this is a big decision in a lot of ways, but we should say right off the top that The court did not rule on whether or not Texas's law is in fact constitutional. This case was all about who can sue and be sued to try and stop Texas's law. And that's actually a huge issue, not just for this particular law, which again, under the current standards is patently unconstitutional, but it's also a big deal for states going forward, states that try and create laws that look like Texas's law, where you outsource enforcement. We know that under Texas's law, if somebody violates that six-week ban on abortion, if somebody aids or abets a woman in obtaining an abortion after six weeks, it's a private individual who sues to enforce it. And Texas's whole theory has been, well, look, we're not involved in the enforcement at all, so we can't be sued. And basically what they're saying is, we've designed a law that evades judicial review. We've designed a law in plain English that means nobody can sue to stop enforcement of this law before it goes into effect. Again, everybody, even a law that's currently patently unconstitutional, And it's going to be really hard once it goes into effect for anybody to actually sue and get a statewide injunction, as opposed to a ruling that says just, okay, well, we can't apply the law with respect to this particular person. A statewide injunction is what you need. It means that the law can't be applied to anybody. Okay, so 
back to the Supreme Court, what happened is the Supreme Court was ruling on two different challenges to Texas's law. One came from the Department of Justice, the federal government against Texas. The court dismissed that as we all thought they would um, after oral arguments. The other case came from abortion providers, and it was lodged against a number of different defendants. So the defendants were uh, state court clerks, state court judges, the state attorney general, and medical board professionals, people who look after the licensing of medical professionals in Texas. And the court said it's only with respect to that last group that the case can go forward. So who can sue and be sued in Texas? The only case that's allowed to continue moving through the federal court system is that case of the abortion providers versus the members of the state medical board, essentially. And Joe, I know I've been talking for a while, but I'm going to say why that's a problem. It's a problem because if you let the abortion providers sue, for instance, the state court clerks, that would allow for a result where you could get a statewide injunction. It's not at all clear that by allowing the case to go forward against just these medical board professionals, that you could get a statewide injunction to stop that law from being in effect, which means, Joe, that you potentially still have this game of whack-a-mole where it's individuals filing suits against different groups or individuals and then hoping that you can get a favorable ruling that at least the Texas law can't be in effect with respect to you know one set of groups or individuals. That's not a true remedy. Again, a true remedy is a statewide injunction. I know it sounds like we got really into the legal weeds. We did, but this is largely a procedural case, but with huge consequences. So I hope that was somewhat clear in explaining to people exactly what did and did not happen. All right. So what about those consequences in reality? What about women who are trying to obtain an abortion in the state of Texas during that period? What is the current status of SB8 while this challenge is addressed? I'm so glad that you asked that because it's easy to spend a lot of time talking about this procedural mess that Texas created and not talk about what's actually happening. So let's talk about what else the court didn't do this morning. They didn't stay this Texas law, meaning they allowed the Texas law to remain in effect. So what's going on in Texas? Women are not able to exercise their constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion, at least after six weeks, right? So again, it started September 1st when the Supreme Court basically did nothing and allowed this law to go into effect. And it's continuing now, we're recording this episode in the middle of December that Roe v. Wade has already been functionally overturned in Texas. So we already know, Joe, from reports on the ground that hundreds of women are being turned away from abortion clinics, again, because most women or many women at the very least don't even know they're pregnant. This is one late period at best. Um, and we know that women are who have the ability are trying to go into other states. We also know that just this week, 
Joe and I are both California residents, that just this week, California has started very serious discussions about trying to be a sanctuary state and basically talking about what that means. It means allowing women from other states to come to California and obtain abortions. And in fact, even in some cases, try and provide uh, funding for that. So Joe, what does this mean? Again, it means we're in two really different Americas for women in this country. And Jessica, that brings us to why the big question of those W questions. Why did the court decide to leave this law in effect now? We've talked about this a lot, as I keep saying on our podcast. Is this an indication, yet another indication, that abortion protections are doomed at the federal level in America? I think the answer is yes, Joe. And I'm really glad that you asked this because it's it's a case about procedural issues, but you can just feel the majority of the court's hostility to reproductive rights through this decision. And it's really, Joe, I think, frankly, becoming a question of like, how many times do we need the court to telegraph to us where it's going? So as we talked about, you know, the court allowed Texas's law to go into effect at all. We have that weird situation where there's silence. Then the court says basically, oh, this is procedurally so difficult. We're just going to throw up our hands. Uh, Then this challenge works its way up to the court. And what has happened since this law went into effect, the court heard oral arguments in Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion. It's really hard to have listened to Mississippi's or the oral arguments in the Mississippi case and think anything other than this is a court that's either about to overturn or gut Roe v. Wade. And again, if you really worried about reproductive choice, then you don't allow Texas's law to stay in effect. And if you're really worried about reproductive choice, then you don't say it's only this one group, abortion providers, who can sue this other one narrow group, the medical board professionals. So Everything about this, even though it's really about who can sue and be sued, everything about this is just, frankly, just kind of dripping hostility to abortion rights as I read it. And then take a look at the numbers before we move on, Jessica. I did some cursory research on this. According to Gallup, 49% of Americans currently identify as pro-choice and 47% currently identify as pro-life. If you look at a different poll, according to the Pew Research Center, A 59% majority of U.S. adults say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 39% think abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. So the numbers show that America is divided on this, and it also sounds as if Americans had better prepare themselves for a post-Roe reality. But let's move on, Jessica. I'm sure we'll come back to this topic a number of times between now and next June. Since we last discussed the legal aftermath of the insurrection, there have been a number of developments. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had agreed to comply with a subpoena to appear for the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection from last year, and he then rescinded that cooperation. The committee then said in turn that they had, quote, no choice to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress, much like it recently did with Steve Bannon. So to further up the ante as if the pressure wasn't high enough, Meadows is now suing the committee in order to attempt to block his subpoena. But that's not the only big news out of the committee this week, Jessica. The appeals court denied a certain former president's effort to block the release of White House records to the committee. Can you talk about that a bit? 
a certain former president. Who would that certain former president be, Joe? So, of course, we're talking about former President Trump's suit against Congress and the National Archives. And what he's saying, um, as we've talked about, is don't hand over the White House documents related to January 6th, at least not this bucket, this tranche of documents that um, the House Select Committee on January 6th has asked for. Now, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, lost before the trial court. We talked about that decision. He has now lost again before the D.C. Circuit, a three-judge panel before the D.C. Circuit. I listened to oral arguments in this case. I think we talked about it right after. Things did not look good for former President Trump. And in fact, now that we have the decision, things did not turn out well for him. So I just want to highlight a couple of parts of that decision. They basically upheld what the trial court had said, which is former President Trump, no. And let's talk about why the no. The no is because we're looking at a couple of different interests here. It's Congress's interest to be able to investigate. It's the current president's interest in being able to determine whether or not to waive executive privilege, which President Biden, the current occupant of the Oval Office, said, yes, we're waiving executive privilege with respect to these specific documents. And then it's the interest of a former president to try and override all of that. And that's essentially what the D.C. Circuit said here. Like, no, the former president is not the person in the best position to try and make that assessment. So this has all the earmarks of a chess move, Jessica. What is the obvious next move for Trump on that board? Uh, the Supreme Court. The obvious next move is that he's going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Again, he's appointed a third of the Supreme Court. I actually think he will not um, find much success in the Supreme Court for a couple of reasons. One is it's really a loser case. And two, I think the current court wants to, and this could, you know, be total tea leaf reading, but I think the current court actually really wants to find ways where they can rule against President Trump, former President Trump, so that they can say, look, we're not just politicians in robes. We looked at the facts, we applied the law to the facts, and he was supposed to lose there, so he did. So look at us. We're an impartial uh, judiciary. All right, Jessica, so what's at stake here? I'm loath to be hyperbolic about this, but there are grave consequences if former presidents retain executive privilege after they are no longer in office. It essentially places them beyond the reach of any ability to hold them accountable to illegal behavior, does it not? So not any ability to hold them accountable because a congressional investigation isn't the only route to hold somebody accountable for improper behavior, but it would again, shut off Congress's ability to investigate and in some circumstance. And let's remember what they're investigating here. They're investigating what I would view as an attempted coup. Like it is more than a little bit important to know what former President Trump, when he was still the president, knew and intended and said about the January 6th insurrection. This is something where, again, what was happening on January 6th, Congress was there to do its duty of counting up and certifying electoral college votes. And the former president basically ginned up an angry mob to go storm the Capitol and to try and 
in my view, stop the peaceful transfer of power. So Congress has a very strong interest in trying to determine whether or not uh, the former president tried to subvert the Constitution. And similarly, the current occupant of the White House has a strong interest in being the one to determine whether or not they will assert or waive executive privilege. Let's remember, executive privilege is a privilege that essentially allows presidents to say to Congress, I'm not giving you this information because maybe the information raises national security concerns or we want to ensure that presidents can have you know, free and unfettered discussions when making particularly sensitive decisions. But it's about protecting the office of the presidency, not about protecting the president. And so those are all the, I think, really bad consequences that would have resulted if you allow a former president to basically have a veto to to trump Congress's request and the current president's assertion that, no, we're not going to ask for executive privilege. So as I suspected, there is an awful lot at stake and not just the reputation or legal standing of the former president. So Jessica, let's move on. This is a story also out of the Supreme Court related, but yet not With the perception of increasing partisanship on the Supreme Court, President Biden announced earlier this year that he would form a commission to look into possible reforms on the court, and he did just that. And by that, I mean he formed a commission and then basically abandoned the issue. That commission has now voted to send the results of their findings to Biden's desk. So what kind of reforms were on their wish list, Jessica? What kind of changes did they investigate? So everything, everything from the really big changes dealing with, for instance, should we have term limits? Should we pack the court um, to the more, you know, quote unquote, minor things like uh, more transparency? Should we have audio and video feeds that are always live when it comes to oral arguments? Should there be a code of ethics that's either mandatory or voluntary that's different from the current a voluntary code of ethics that applies to Supreme Court justices. So basically everything was on the table. As much as I am not, in a lot of ways, a fan of the commission's report, in part because just by design it wasn't targeted to do what I wanted, which is let's have some real recommendations. It was targeted to say we're evaluating on the one hand, on the other hand, and it did that very well. But it is, as far as I know, the most exhaustive discussion of basically all of the ways that we could, in really big and really small ways, uh, reform the Supreme Court. Yeah, pick your pop culture reference, Jessica. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, that kind of thing. So who was on this panel? I know it was a panel of experts, but what kind of reputation do these people have? Excellent reputation. So we have legal luminaries. We have professors. We have people who are former federal judges. We have people who've worked in federal government. I mean, we have really a lot of the nation's experts when it comes to the Supreme Court. One thing to note, and Joe, we talked about this a long time, if you want to create a commission where they're really going to do a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand, it's going to look like this because we had commissioners from both kind of sides of the debate. We had liberal and conservative commissioners. This commission, I think, was really designed to make it look like President Biden was doing something so he could say, look, I put together some of the nation's experts, but it wasn't really designed to do anything. 
Right, and let's remember, by design, this wasn't meant to solve the issue, just to kind of have the discussions about the issue. And the results seemed fairly conservative and mostly presented arguments, like I said, just for and against certain structural changes. But they did come out in favor of some small changes, Jessica. Can you tell us about what those were? Basically, changes in favor of transparency, allowing the public basically to open the door a little bit more when it comes to the Supreme Court, um, to have things like live audio so that people can listen in. Um, I think specifically an endorsement regarding the ethical code, that it be voluntary uh, with respect to the Supreme Court, but nothing big for what everybody was looking for, right? Nothing big when it comes to uh, should we expand the number of Supreme Court justices? Should we have term limits? Should we have staggered terms? Um, and as we've both said, that was by design, right? This was designed as a commission that really was going to do a, well, some people say this, other people say this. The thing that I think bothered me the most about the commission isn't that they did exactly what they were asked to do, which is on the one hand, on the other hand. I think that bothered me the most is that in a lot of ways, the report reads like there's a lack of urgency. And let's remember what we just talked about. I mean, our first topic was abortion rights. And this is a Supreme Court that is poised to just fundamentally change the shape of American society. And it's a Supreme Court that I think a lot of people feel a little bit sour about its legitimacy because of something we've talked about, which is, you know, of course, Senator Mitch McConnell blocks Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee, from getting a hearing in 2016, saying we have to wait for the American people to vote to see who the next president will be. And then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away, what was that, five and a half, six weeks before the election, and Mitch McConnell says we're filling the seat. And it just feels so hypocritical, and I think that that kind of need for urgency, the need to address that. Um, in my view, it just wasn't there. Again, I'm not blaming the commissioners at all. I think this was really by design. But even if they had recommended some wholesale changes like the ones we were talking about, increasing the number of justices or silly things like mandating arm wrestling or seasonal robe colors, we all know that the mechanisms for making substantive changes are pretty lean. Am I right about that? Absolutely right. So really, for some of these changes, uh, you need an act of Congress. For others, you need a constitutional amendment. And it was always going to be a hard road. But when you create a commission where you say, basically, don't come out too strong in favor of anything. Just you know, tell me what the lay of the land looks like. It all but assures that those really, really difficult uphill battles uh, won't be fought. All right, Jessica. Now, you, as a student of the court... In summary, do you see any changes stemming from this, or is this merely, as you said, a kind of performative exercise? I don't at this point see changes. There might be some low-hanging fruit, um, again, dealing with transparency, but I, I don't look at this report and, frankly, look at how this report was put together and think, oh, there'll be big changes. Let's remember it was then candidate Biden who was asked in October 2020, right before the election, basically, what do you think about all these Supreme Court reforms? And he said, oh, I'm going to have a commission look at that. So it allowed him cover when he was a candidate. It's allowed him cover now in the beginning of his presidency. And given that, I just, I don't see big changes coming. 
All right. So veering from law to politics a bit, Jessica, do you think this is a failure of Joe Biden and his administration? He has the power to initiate change at a time when change is desperately needed, but he doesn't and never did really appear to have the stomach for addressing festering problems in the court. It's as if he's playing 1950s politics in a crumbling democracy. So is it a failure? I I feel a huge sense of urgency when it comes to the Supreme Court, and I don't really feel that from the current administration. I understand that he has to have a huge sense of urgency for a lot of issues, but let's think about all of the decisions, and I would view them as some really anti-democratic decisions that the court is poised to make in areas dealing with voting rights, religious rights, freedom from discrimination, the Second Amendment. Obviously, we've talked about abortion. I just think it would be really, really hard to have big structural change, but it's really, really needed. And I just don't see this happening. So that leads me with this. Does anyone in Washington have the courage or political will to make changes? Jessica, I used to say that the strength of our democracy and of our governing document, the Constitution, was in its malleability. But we have arrived at a place where half the country wants to go backwards, but time is linear and moves only forwards. We hopefully take lessons from the past and apply them to the future, but this just isn't that. I think that's right. I, I'm so reminded of a college seminar I took uh, dealing with time, and you're talking about time being linear and only marching forward. And look, I think that President Biden is exactly who he said he was as a candidate. And he telegraphed, I think, clearly that he did not feel urgency with respect to this area. And I think everything is bearing that out. So I don't know what happens, Joe, and this is the real question for me, after the court either overturns or guts Roe. That might create a new sense of urgency. Uh, but I think we need to wait for those moments, not for us to keep talking about what's to come, but for it to actually come to fruition. And then we'll see, if, again, if there's a new sense of urgency. All right, Jessica, now let's turn to an event and a trial that took place in my hometown of Chicago. This story began on January 29th of 2019 when actor Jesse Smollett claimed that he had been attacked by two men as he was walking home around 2 a.m. Central Standard Time, cold and dark in Chicago that time of year, Jessica. Smollett made claims that the men used racial and homophobic slurs as they assaulted him. He also alleged that the attackers put a noose around his neck and poured bleach on him during the attack. Now, fast forward just a little bit. A police investigation led prosecutors to turn Smollett from an alleged victim to a suspect, saying that he orchestrated the attack himself and paid two brothers to help him carry it out. So that trial ended this week, Jessica. And what was that verdict? Uh, guilty on five of the six counts. Okay, then what were those charges? So he faced six counts of disorderly conduct under a portion of the state law that bars false reports to police officers. So some states don't characterize false reports to police officers as disorderly conduct. In this case, we have a state statute that does. Um, and in this case, we have a jury who, frankly, I think just believed the prosecution's theory of the case and wasn't buying what the defense was selling. And I think for the defense, the uphill battle was that the prosecution had the more cohesive story, they had evidence, they had testimony, and the defense was really never able to offer a theory of the case, frankly, that made much sense. And that's why I think you see um, guilty on almost all charges. 
And there were some salacious details that came out during the trial that we won't get into. But Jessica, this is a high-profile case in a time of sky-high racial tensions and divisiveness in the United States. We've watched the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse for shooting several people during protests after police shot Jacob Blake. We've watched the conviction of three men for the murder of Ahmad Arbery. We've watched the police shooting of Breonna Taylor and the events of Charlottesville, and a whole summer of civil unrest and protests in 2020. So it's hard not to ascribe cultural significance to a case like the Jesse Smollett trial. But at the end of the day, Jessica, wrong is wrong. And it seems as if justice might have been served here. Am I right? Absolutely. So you don't get to file a false police report, period. And that should really be the end of the story. As you said, obviously, we're grappling with very real issues dealing with systemic injustice in our criminal justice system. That should in no way mean that you just can file a false police report. And I think it's really unfortunate, frankly, to the many very real victims of attacks that are either racially based or uh, based on homophobia that apparently Jesse Smollett would fake one of those attacks. I won't say apparently, you know, a jury has now found that to be the case. And it really harms those who are the actual victims of such attacks. All right, Jessica, let's move on to our final topic for today. Longtime Republican politician Bob Dole died this week at the age of 98, and his legacy casts a long shadow on the politics of our country. Dole almost didn't live to see his 22nd birthday, as he was gravely wounded in Italy during World War II and was disabled for the majority of his life as a result of his battle wounds. Robert Joseph Dole was born in Russell, Kansas on July 22, 1923, a state he would represent in the House of Representatives for eight years and also in the Senate for more than 27 years. Dole was not born into financial wealth. His father sold dairy products and his mother worked as a traveling saleswoman who sold sewing machines and other related products. At the University of Kansas, he played on the basketball and football teams as well as running track. He joined the army in 1942 and fought in Italy in World War II, where he got caught in a German machine gun attack. He ended up losing a kidney and had his right shoulder shattered, as well as sustaining injuries to his neck and spine that left him temporarily paralyzed from the neck down. He endured nine operations and three years of rehabilitation in a number of hospitals before regaining the use of most of his body, although his left arm was numb and his right arm remained useless for the rest of his life. He was famous for holding a pen in his right hand so that people wouldn't shake his right hand. Although he said in interviews that it regularly took him nearly an hour to get dressed every day, it didn't slow him down much. He taught himself how to write with his left hand, and he entered politics after returning to school in Kansas after the war. He won a seat in the Kansas state legislature. he earned a law degree, and he was eventually elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1960. He stayed in politics for the rest of his professional life, spending 79 years in public service. He was married twice and is survived by his daughter Robin from his first marriage and his wife Elizabeth Dole, who herself served as a senator from North Carolina from 2003 to 2009. Dole's career as a senator from Kansas spanned from 1969 until 1996, when he left the Senate to run for president in 1996, losing to Bill Clinton in what would become Clinton's second term. In 2018, Dole received the Congressional Gold Medal, making him only the eighth senator to receive that award. Dole was a stalwart Republican from a time when Republicans were a different kind of stalwart. He worked to expand the federal food stamp program and to raise awareness for people with disabilities. But Jessica, I know you have a personal story that involves Senator Dole. Can you please share it with us? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's a bit of a silly story. So I'll just give that disclaimer. Then Senator Dole was in fact campaigning for the presidency in 1996. And I was a teenager. I was too young to vote. It's no secret how old I am. Um, I think I was 16 during the election of 1996. And he was campaigning and staying, I believe, at the same um, hotel that my family was staying at. And I remember I made it my mission uh, to be able to meet him. So we're on this, uh, what was otherwise a really nice family vacation. And I was always just kind of slipping away and escaping because I really wanted to meet a presidential candidate. And it is the case that I didn't agree with, even as a probably precocious 16-year-old, um, a lot of his policy views, but I also knew that this is somebody who has served our country with distinction. And again, having a sense that this is probably the last World War II veteran that any of us would be able to uh, consider as a presidential candidate. And there is something to be said for that. And I just remember all of the weird ways that as a teenager, I thought I was being very... Um, intrepid and, you know, trying to pretend I was just happening upon uh, candidate Dole and his entourage. And finally, kind of at the end of the stay, I was able to get my moment with him, my picture for the high school newspaper. I think it will surprise nobody who listens to this podcast that I worked for the high school newspaper and absolutely loved it. And uh, I just remember him being an incredibly gracious. And I was clearly too young to be able to vote. And he gave of his time and he really talked to me for a minute. And um, it's not an endorsement of his policy views. It's an endorsement of fact that he was a person who gave an enormous amount to our country and really didn't need to stand there in the middle of a presidential election and talk to a high school kid and was honestly seemed excited to do so. And so I got my high school newspaper story and I got my little piece of history and I got to meet somebody again who I think his service to the country is undeniable. So that is my little uh, Bob Dole story. Was it totally predictable? Uh, it's a great story, Jessica, and thank you for sharing it. And if nothing else, it's indicative of your, as you said, precociousness at the tender age of 16 and also your future as a political junkie, the uh, formative period of which was already in full force at that age. It's no surprise that you're making a podcast about law and politics and everything in between and that you teach law as well. So thanks for sharing that. And also, Jessica, before we go, please tell our faithful listeners where they can read your latest columns about these and other topics. So I have a bunch of MSNBC columns. It's been a delightfully busy week in that way. I have a column on, uh, I think, almost all of our big topics today, a column on the um, Texas abortion decision, a column on the D.C. Circuit decision, a column coming out very soon about the Supreme Court Commission. I did not write on Jesse Smollett. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and kind of TikTok. I'm going to do try and do a TikTok on Texas today at Levinson Jessica across Joe as you would say the socials and where can we find you uh, you can find me Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at in-depth day you can find our podcast that's what you're listening to right now on Twitter at past judgment pod and on Instagram at passing judgment pod thank you Jessica ever so much for making these with me I love doing this it's so much fun to talk about these topics with you thank you 
Okay, everybody, we'll talk to you soon.